Welcome to this episode of Revolution and Ideology. I'm Nick. I'm Jared. And this is an interesting episode. We're providing a response to an article. Uh, we'll get to the details of that in just a second. But this actually just was perfect timing for me because I've been doing a really, really deep dive lately into the potential. My basic research question is, can technology challenge the current nation state? What technologies exist? What technology would have to be created, et cetera? Is it even possible for some world to exist where the state, is, as we know it now, is replaced by some technological, whether it's a virtual network or something like that? Um, I didn't really think of it as I went down this rabbit hole, but it's kind of an interesting intersection of my background. In, most people don't know this, but I have uh, my first degree was in business finance and entrepreneurship. My second undergraduate degree was psychology. And then as everyone knows, that's a listener, at least uh, my uh, graduate work was in sociology. But prior to entering academia, I worked for 15 years as an IT manager. So really, really deep in the tech world. And I have a couple of failed tech startups uh, under my belt. Mm -hmm. So it's a really interesting intersection in like different lives that I've led throughout uh, my years on this planet. Anyways, so the timing was interesting because an entrepreneur, uh, uh, I mean, investor, entrepreneur, et cetera, self-proclaimed technologist, optimist, and pragmatist by the name of Balaji Srinivasan. Um, if you've never heard him, uh, an interview with him or anything like that, he's a really, really interesting person to listen to uh, just because you can get a little bit of his background. He has a ton of companies he's invested in and started, but he was the CTO for uh, Coinbase for a while, the digital crypto wallet trading platform. Um, so he's really, really deep into crypto and uh, philosophy and all kinds of stuff. I think his PhD was in uh, electrical engineering from Stanford, if I remember correctly. Anyways, that's a long intro to say he wrote an article working, on, he's working on a book right now, and he wrote an article on uh, his website about this, and it's titled How to Start a New Country. And so this is where our listeners' ears sort of perk up, because this is an interesting topic uh, that really falls in our wheelhouse a little bit. And his theory is basically that we can create a new type of country using technology that will challenge the current uh, model of the nation state. Uh, I think it's, go ahead. go ahead. No, okay. I think it's important for uh, our listeners know where we're coming from, but if there are any new listeners that are attracted to um, either this podcast or this video, uh, we definitely come from the background or like the, the point of departure where the nation state is one of the least official forms of social organization that's ever existed and led us down a rather unsustainable trajectory. So much of what we have on our channel and on our pod are thinking and considering ways to challenge the construction of the nation state. So it must mm -hmm. be stressed that we are going to come at this uh, very critically from the beginning because moving from a nation state to a different type of nation state, maybe a virtual nation state, is not something that either of us find wildly appealing to begin with. However, one of the appeals that we do have um, within uh, his work is that they, the technologies that he speaks of could also be used to de deconstruct notions of nationhood um, and statecraft. So that's where we're coming from. Yeah, so I thought about that a lot too. And it's be like highly critical of it really. Like, so that is- Yeah, that is it's interesting stuff. because he uses the terminology, right? He, his term is the network state, right? Right. I thought about this a lot, right? But the model that he proposes isn't really the same as what the current nation state is. So I will see as this unfolds, right? This, by the way, was his first article in a series of articles that- Apparently he's going to write, and he's also, I know, working on a book on this because I've been watching a lot of his interviews lately. So we'll have to see how it plays out because kind of he's implying that it won't technically be a state, right? And I thought about a lot about this, and he actually talked about this, like, if we use Max Weber's definition of a state, which is an entity that has a monopoly on violence, then very clearly this virtual version will not be that, right? There will be no it won't even be possible for there to be any kind of really violence, at least on a surface level. But we'll have to see how that plays out. But I agree with that. I can't even critique it from that angle because I don't really know what the end game is yet, right? But isn't but yeah, that you're right? Like we don't want to recreate a current, an identical version of the current state just in the cloud. Like no, I don't. We don't want that for sure. I don't actually think he wants that either. But as the state evolves, won't violence as well, right? How yeah, do we define sure. violence? That's a whole different like can of worms, yeah, right? Like exactly. virtual violence. All of a sudden, um, hacking is considered, yeah, et cetera. Yeah, absolutely. So. 
Um, okay, so he says the network state is built cloud first, land last. Rather than starting with physical territory, we begin with digital community. And he goes through uh, his article, and I'm not even going to touch on, but this is just the outline of his article. You can check it out. We'll post a link in the show notes too. He says, uh, why should people start a new country? How to start a new country? Uh, minimum necessary innovation? And then what counts as a new country? That's sort of the outline. So we'll provide commentary on that as we go through. I wrote a response to this uh, that we're going to go through basically in this video, but I'll also put uh, the written copy of it on our website and probably on my Medium page um, as well. So the first thing I want to touch on, which I actually appreciate about him, um, very clearly our listeners know that we come from a leftist perspective. Uh, that's not a secret to anyone. And uh, if you didn't know that, then I have no idea how you listened to us for more than five minutes and didn't pick that up. Um, but what I really, really like is there's no left or right in much of his discourse. He does talk about private property, et cetera. But for the most part, as much as anyone can avoid the traditional left-right paradigm, he does a really good job of doing so, which in this particular article is incredibly impressive because it's literally an article about starting a new country. So to be able to do that without really being really, really left or really, really right requires uh, a lot of gymnastics that he actually performs pretty well. But the reason that I think this is important is because if we're going to a place that's going to have real conversations about creating a new technological way of organizing that can challenge and transcend the traditional modern state, we really have to leave behind left-right politics. Like those things have to lose all meaning for us if we're gonna have really productive conversations. And so I just wanna say he does actually a really good job of trying to do that. And I actually listened to a Beyond This Article uh, lecture that he gave uh, online via Zoom. And he actually talks about this at depth and says that there has to be, or there has to be aspects of both things left and right traditional political stances it, it go in the future. Otherwise, like none of this is going to work. And he specifically talks about how, you know, we could create, if we can get enough people together digitally to agree, we could have collective bargaining agreements just like the socialist unions do. And we could create a sovereignty where all of us together virtually will have power together, right? And he said like the right tends to forget that. And so there are good things from the right and the left, this idea of sovereignty and this idea of like socialist workers unions. And like, we have to transcend and come up with novel ways to combine those things in order to be successful as a people. So it's kind of interesting. I just say all that to say the left to right traditional like paradigm basically doesn't play in this discourse. We're gonna critique clearly a lot of it, um, but it's just something that like we're going to have to work on. And I think most people are going to have to be open-minded to for this to work. It's not just like a technological advancement. It's really like an ideological advancement too, which is one of my other huge points, which we'll get to in a second. Do you have anything to add to that? Uh, nothing productive. Uh, maybe I'm, maybe I'm, maybe I'm too grounded in certain forms of sediment regarding like the left right binary paradigm. Um, I, I do think that, well, I mean, I think statecraft any kind, virtual, whatever, in and of itself, as we've already talked about, is somewhat of a political statement and 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 conservative by nature. That's just me. But yeah. So I think just merely. So the I'll challenge you to say like, yes, I fully agree. We're not trying to recreate the United States in the cloud. Like that'd be a waste of everyone's time. And I know that's not what he's after either. So I right. don't want to like charge him with that. But I think actually the use of the term state is a direct reflection of this sediment, which we'll get to in a second, the sediment that we're talking about. Right. Like there literally another term does not exist. So he uses the term network state really to be the negation of the current manifestation of the modern nation state. But I think the term state itself has actually outlived its usefulness. Um, and I don't know if that he would disagree with that. Um, so I tried to forgive him a little bit for using the term state because there's just literally not anything else that you could use at this point. Maybe there will be throughout this conversation and his writing. But yeah, I, I, I assume that his goal is actually to dismantle the state as it exists and not just to recreate it in the cloud, right? So his goal isn't like, well, let's just take everything about the nation state that's tied to physical territory and let's do the same thing virtually. Like that would really be a waste of time. Uh, it doesn't really function to benefit anyone uh, anyways. So I'm trying to give him a little bit of liberty there and continuing to use the term state because literally another term doesn't exist. Um, and it's probably not the time in the conversation to create one, but that time might come, who knows. 
Okay, I'm going to read a quote from him. Um, yeah, he says, we want to be able to peacefully start a new country for the same reason we want to, we want a bare plot of earth, a blank sheet of paper, an empty text buffer, a fresh startup or a clean slate, because we want to build something new without historical constraint. Okay, I don't actually care about any of the rest of this paragraph, other than the very last sentence. He says, because we want to build something new without historical constraint. Now, fair warning, I fully understand that I specifically chose a very, very small point of his entire article to focus my response around. There are so many other big bucket things that could have been critiqued. I'm actually going to save those for his next article or his book when it comes out, when we start actually talking about what this would look like. What does the network state look like and how does it function? I'm going to save a lot of those general critiques for later. What I really want to talk about and what I focused on is that uh, I believe it's actually impossible to create something new without any historical constraint, both technologically, i.e. materially, and ideologically. And that's really what we're going to focus on here in this episode. Um, so I understand this is very narrow, like he says this in one sentence, and it's not even entirely crucial to his overall argument. But this is the one thing that I think is important that we need to all understand going forward, if, we're, if this project was ever actually going to become a reality in any manifestation, we need to be wary of framing this as an entirely new thing without any limitations, because we are limited by the current material and ideological world. Okay, anything to add now? There's never, been, there's never been a wholly new or original process or frame of thought or discourse or invention in, in, in human history, to be blunt, right. because all of it is based on like that sediment that we're talking about, like prior knowledge, prior production of knowledge, prior material constraints, resources, et, et cetera. Like, so there's nothing wholly new. Moreover, that's not even just speaking about like the novel ways that we might be able to construct a new form of like virtual social organization, uh, for lack of a better term. I don't want to use state because I don't like it. But um, but it's it's the ideological as well. Like you would have to unpack a whole host of things from again, like, I mean, we're talking about marginalized people and their access to such a state and that marginalization is historically based um, to, of course, the history of how states end up attempting to create something novel, whether that is economically or politically or in terms of organization and more times than not, especially for the both of us, since we teach resistance and revolution, why they end up recreating um, merely what they had um, defeated or left or, uh, uh, I mean, you get where I'm going with this. No, that's right? a perfect like, point that I didn't like, articulate well. Like it never writing. goes away unless you fully... Yeah. And this is why we even like, and this is why one of our courses called ideologies, ideologies and isms is much more near and dear to our heart, because until we actually frame a completely different way of viewing the world, that paradigm shift happens, uh, I guess, subjectively in the brain, there is no way to create something new, even if it's a new like material construct. Yes, we're moving from physical or geographical territory to the cloud. So be it if our brains are still functioning along the same dominant discourses and following the same dialectic, it's merely going to reproduce itself under different material circumstances, the same inequalities, right? The same exploitation, those things are going to continue to exist. And they could be even more dangerous given technologies, um, I guess, inclination towards like the big brother state, like that, that's already a thing. Yeah. Yeah. That's a perfect way of articulating what I didn't, I didn't really talk about this in the writing at all, is if we aren't aware of the limitations now and the constraints now that exist that we are forced to wrestle with if we are to create something new, then we will make the mistake of just recreating what already exists. Like you said, every revolution that we have studied and that we use in our courses and et cetera, in some capacity and sometimes 100% recreates exactly what they were trying to defeat. Sometimes it's even worse. Right. And so we want to make sure going into this discussion that the limitations and constraints that already exist that we need to maintain an awareness of throughout the process so that that doesn't happen. Because nobody wants to just recreate an oppressive totalitarian state in the cloud. Like that's dumb. Right. No one wants to do that. And I know biology doesn't want to do that. We don't want to do that clearly. Um, but we have to maintain the awareness of some certain things. So I have uh, basically this is in two buckets. Uh, overcoming material and ideological constraints that currently exist uh, that we need to be aware of. And the first one I want to talk about is technical debt. Have you ever heard this term before? No. You, when, when I read your notes and went over them, that was uh, technically the first time I had heard of it. 
so technical debt is a super common term in like software development as an example and other technology development. Basically, I'll explain it uh, easily is essentially say you're developing some software product and you just want to get it out as soon as actually possible. And so you're going through and creating code and you put in a solution to that code that technically works, but it's not the most efficient way to do it. And you do that over and over and over again so that you can finish this product as quickly as possible. All along, you're building, you're accruing technical debt because someone eventually is going to have to go back and repair, all, repair and replace, fix all of that bad code to make the product eventually uh, function well, be seamless, take up less space on in memory, et cetera, right? So that is technical debt. You're accruing this entire time, this debt, as you're building a product that technically works, but it doesn't work as good as it should. It's not as efficient as it should. It's basically because you're just trying to release the product. You're just trying to launch as quickly as possible. The reason that is an issue in this context that we need to be aware of is because Biology suggests that most of the technology already exists to facilitate this creation of the network state. I don't actually disagree with that. I do think that for the most part, we have cryptocurrency and um, smart contracts and right, all of these like Airbnb as an example for finding physical dwellings and social networks that are huge that exist and ways to like meta govern things and decentrally autonomous organizations, like all kinds of things exist uh to transfer money quickly and like all this stuff that's not a that's not a problem but we need to be wary of taking on the technical debt that exists within those technologies if this network state is going to make use of these technologies in ways that is fundamentally qualitatively different than they are meant to be used right it might require a completely reconstructing of the technology from the ground up. This is kind of a minor point, but I, it's just kind of like, I feel like, yes, the technology might exist to make this happen. We could plug it all together. However, that could be associated with an incredible and insurmountable potentially amount of technical debt that we need to be uh, aware of. Um, he has a quote here. Uh, let's see if I can find it. He says, the cloud country concept just requires stacking together many existing technologies rather than inventing new ones. Like I said, I don't really disagree with that. Uh, this is curious in a term that I actually like to use a lot because it helps uh, people visualize the invention of new technology, et cetera. It's called combinatorial evolution, which is really one way that technology innovation it happens is through the combining of existing technologies. And that results in an evolution in the way that all of those technologies exist and comes up with something new, right? So we could combine a bunch of already existing technologies and that could potentially create uh, an evolution of, in this case, we're talking about uh, a way of socially organizing. But we have to be mindful of the technical debt that could exist uh, with those existing technologies. So that's one point that's kind of a minor point, but I think it's important that we need to be aware of uh, if we're going to build the network state out of already existing technologies, then it very clearly isn't being built uh, free from historical constraints. In this case, the historical constraint is technical debt that we need to be aware of. Anything to add to that? No, uh, no. All right. So the next one is technical constraints, and this is different than technical debt. So technical debt is an issue, right? Except let's say we, we're going to adopt this uh, uh, social network to use for our purposes, right? Well, we might have to refashion that social network, like literally to the point of redoing the code and the way that it's structured to deal with technical debt. But that's not the, what I'm talking about when I'm talking about technical constraints. I'm just going to read an excerpt of what I wrote, which you can read on the website. I say there are inevitable constraints which will accompany the use of already existing technologies to create the new virtual nation. Because these technologies were created within the confines of the existing nation state model. This is qualitatively different from the above mentioned technical debt, for example, bad code. Since most already existing technology has been created with very specific goals in mind, goals which presumably do not align with the virtual nation, for example, the pursuit of profit, opaqueness, centralization, control, data gathering, and so on. Um, I begin to question Balaji's claim that we can just stack together technologies and not have to invent any new ones. I, I, I certainly think we're going to have to develop new technologies. Um, worst case, already existing technologies have been developed to exist within the modern nation state model. 
uh, actually, that's not even the worst case. Worst case would be that they have been developed to perpetuate and support the modern nation state. Correct. Model, they are exploitative. Yeah, yeah, they are exploitative. They are predatory. Yes. Surveillance, that, right? Correct. All kinds they of things policing. that we can think of. Yeah, yeah. So, so, yeah. So this is where even though it's not necessarily ideological, we're talking about material, this is that sediment that's already built. And again, if we're going to use things that are already, and I'm going to use this term intentionally because this is the way I feel about them, already mm -hmm. nefariously constructed, right? For, For nefarious sure. reasons, right? Whatever the, whether those reasons are in terms of like data mining or, or profit margins, whatever it is, these things, I mean, you, they can't be repurposed, I, I suppose. I mean, I guess they can be repurposed, but if they're already constructed in a certain way, and again, I, I'm not like, you know, as technologically inclined as, as Nick here, so he could probably speak to this better than I can. But I guess I'm just not sure how much evolution it would take or how much combination or mixing and matching to create this like magic amalgamation of all these, like these current technologies to somehow create a more... And what I think he's envisioning, egalitarian understanding of social organization. Yeah, I think there's probably like three categories, right, of existing technologies. The like worst case for this purposes is can't be repurposed at all. Like just absolutely cannot work in this model whatsoever, right? The right. second like sort of middle ground is it can work, but it's going to have to be re, re, redone in some fashion, right? Whether that's a recoding or something, let's say minor modification. And then there are the ones that are just plug and play. Like they will just work from the ground up. And we will have to do nothing but plug them into the project and they will be possible. But we have to be mindful of that there are those and there might be even more categories, right? But there's at least those three, right? And it has to be something like wholly different. Like I liken this for those of us like myself that are more comfortable talking about material culture, tangible things that we can hold. Like there are people, for example, like the gun is a gun. Whether mm -hmm. that gun is in the hands of a revolutionary or that gun is in the hands of the state, like its function, it, and, and we're talking about technology, which is a tool, it as a tool has not changed whatsoever. So I guess- I And the end goal of the gun, if it's used, right? Its function is fulfilled is to kill. Is to kill. Injure, now right? there are people, and I want to give a shout out to some people I know that have actually taken guns and taken them apart and 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 blacksmith them into other things. Mm -hmm. But but that's the type of like deconstruction and complete repurposing that we would have to be talking about. And I'm just not sure that's possible in the technological sphere. Yeah. That that that's for you to decide because again, you know more a little bit more about that than I, I I do. But again, if we think about a tool, even if we take it from something away from more something more, uh, um, I don't know let's say a hammer, like a hammer is a hammer is a hammer is a hammer. It would take so much effort to turn that hammer into something wholly different. It'd have mm -hmm. to be smelted and melted down and the wood would have to be taken and turned it like, and I just don't know. Like by that point, you might have just built something new from the ground. Correct. Up, right? the cost Unless you want to reuse analysis, the resources, et yeah, cetera. Yeah. The cost benefit analyses yeah. that, that are going to probably like be a big, like, like determining factor in how this works are just not going to, it's not going to be a thing. And the reason this is important for this project is really only for the, it's not even about like, oh, the labor required to redo this open source project or something, right? Like that's like, we're not even talking about that. Let's say we have unlimited resources. The fear is that we will mistakenly make use of a product that like unknowingly make use of some kind of technology that will in, end up with the nation, the, this network state failing because we failed to realize that its only function and only end could be to perpetuate the current modern nation state, right? And then we would end up either failing or just recreating what already exists. And that would be an oversight, clearly a grave oversight if we did that. So I think that my main point here is just, we need to be aware of the inherent qualities of existing technology that can reproduce the existing inequalities, violence, et cetera. Uh, those things can be embedded in certain technologies and we need to be just aware of that at all times, right? If this project is going to be, uh, like I have actually a really good example here uh, that's just on my mind because Jared and I have been into NBA Top Shots lately and et cetera. But um, I talk about the all of the games that have been built on the Ethereum blockchain that like the, the ideas are just really, really incredible and they're awesome and they should be completely like celebrated for being pioneers in their space, but they very quickly revealed the impossibilities of having any kind of gaming on the Ethereum blockchain because the gas fees are so, so high, 
right? To breed a pair of crypto kitties is in like $2,000 right now. Even though the actual transaction is free, right? As far as crypto kitties is concerned, to pay the gas fees on the chain, to actually have them bred, to conduct that transaction on the chain is in the realm of, I think it's about uh, two grand or something right now. So it's basically the game is unplayable. So this has though given birth to exciting new technologies like the Flow blockchain, right? Dapper Labs who invented CryptoKitties then developed the Flow blockchain to be to more facilitate gaming on the blockchain. So that's awesome, but we just have to be wary and mindful of using existing technologies for the network state project that like, we don't wanna have that happen. We're like, okay, we've adopted, we built our whole network state around this existing technology and six months down the road realize that it just makes the network state completely impossible, that it's just unusable at that point. Well, and it still fails, right? I'm much more familiar right. with the NBA Top Shot since I'm kind of like, yeah. you know, whatever, working on that every day. And it's still like, even though this is supposed to be like a novel way to quote unquote trade sports paraphernalia or sports cards in this case, it's less about cryptocurrency. And I've learned that over time. It's more about like the, the sports paraphernalia. It's not a true Bitcoin competitor or anything along those lines. Mm -hmm. It's not one of those. But like at this point in time, you still have the, 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 the company in this case, NBA Top shot like as a like a top-down organization like arbitrarily deciding when the market's going to work and when the market's going to not and like where these starting points are and they continue to like get their hands it's it's not a free market by any stretch of the imagination it's actually mm -hmm. highly orchestrated from the top down and we're all caught in a reactionary those of us that have participated reacting to what the powers that be determine um, are important at any given moment in time. And that's not even to discuss all of the technological issues that they continue to run into. I get that right. it is in beta at this point, but they have billions and I billions of dollars just dumped in from like some of the richest corporations in the world to include the National Basketball Association alongside like the Players Association. And, and they've had literal months to get this right, which, and they just can't seem to do it. And, and I get, maybe I'm being a little bit too judgmental over what, what, what timeline should look like in terms of getting a system to work correctly. But I, I guess I'm of the belief that if you're going to put this much effort in um, and this much time marketing and, and, and going out and finding funding and things along those lines that you should probably make a product that works well. And again, this is just a super like micro tiny example, mm -hmm. but I mean, it, it is an example of the dangers of kind of putting faith in these systems to actually function for the benefit of the user. And, and, and that's a term that I think I want to dig into maybe on the next episode. How do users become citizens in this potential virtual like, and what is the cross-section or correlation there? Because right now we're users, right? Or consumers or, or, or what have you. And um, what determining factors and what rights I, I mean, if we're talking about constructing nation states, are we going yeah. to have like some sort of like virtual bill of rights and th these types of things? Like, how is this, yeah. what is that political relationship going to look like between those that are constructing the infrastructure, the virtual infrastructure? Because like I said, with, with NBA Top Shots, it is, it is, a, it is a dictatorship. It, yeah. and, and how is that going to work? And I'm just using Top Shots as a, Facebook as a dictatorship. Um, I don't know enough about Twitter since I don't tweet, but I'm willing to bet it operates heavily as a dictator. Oh, a dictatorship for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, and these are just examples that I'm at least remotely familiar with. Somebody that's mm -hmm. more technologically inclined, like Nick, can probably find other examples in other like um, uh, uh, whatever industries, uh, online industries that exist. Uh, Wikipedia might be a better example that that presents mm -hmm. opportunity for the democratization of the production of knowledge. So, I guess there are possibilities there. I'll use Wikipedia as kind of like maybe. Uh, that potential for silver lining. But again, that organization, for example, is always hitting us up for money because they're struggling. They don't have like that top-down infrastructure, um, at least not yeah. that I'm aware of that these other organizations do. So, and, and again, a lot of this has to do with funding. Like if you're going to make this transition from the material world to the virtual world, you're still going to need to use funding. And those with the most funding are going to be the ones writing the rules of engagement. That tends to be how it works historically speaking, whether we're talking about the transition from the agricultural revolution to the Roman Empire, Empire or the Roman Empire, the modern day Republic, like that's how it always has worked. Mm -hmm. So this next transition, if it is indeed a possible transition, is going to have to somehow make a clear schism there. There will have to be a fundamental paradigm shift. And I don't believe it's possible using like, again, the existing discourses and dialectics that already are already around. So, Okay. So that's technical, tech, technical debt and technical constraints, which is kind of the first half of my uh, writing. The second half has to do with ideological debt. Uh, and this is really like Jared and I's wheelhouse. Like he mentioned earlier, we teach a class called ideology and isms, why we think the way we do, etc. 
And I really want to make use of a term here that I like that was uh, invented by French philosophers uh, basically simultaneously, um, Franz Fanon and others, uh, Beauvoir, so forth. And it's the idea of historical sediments. So I'm going to read a quote uh, that explains this. It says, when I chat with a friend whom I know well, each of his remarks and each of mine contains, in addition to the meaning it carries for everybody else, a host of references to the main dimensions of his character and mine without our needing to recall previous conversations with each other. There's a world of thoughts or a sediment left by our mental processes, which enables us to rely on our concepts and acquire judgments as we might on things there in front of us, presented globally without there being any need for us to resynthesize them. So I say, even if the virtual nation was made possible by entirely novel technology with zero technical debt or constraints, mm -hmm. each individual carries with them this sediment, essentially historical ideological debt. Uh, so aside from the technological problems of how to create this new type of like virtual nation, right? There's considerable ideological obstacles as well. Like the acceptance of the virtual network state, even by those who are technically inclined, philosophically aligned, uh, economically like into it, et cetera. Even among those people, right? The people that are like most predisposed to be ideal citizens of the network state it's still going to require just such a schism to use Jared's term earlier in the way that we think about the world and really, really the way that we construe our, construct ourselves as subjects, right? It's going to require a massive, massive shift that I haven't seen Balaji talk about yet. That doesn't mean that it's not coming, but it's essentially completely omitted from the lectures that I've seen so far and from this article as well. Um, any co comment before I continue on to the latter half of this point? No, I mean, without going into like a brief discussion of our general linear understanding of how ideology has been constructed historically, which I don't know is super fruitful right now for our listeners mm -hmm. that are interested in this podcast. Like, I just don't. I mean, it, it, I, yes. I mean, if we look at how ideologies build upon, build upon each other historically, they all take elements of the prior. Like they mm -hmm. all take elements of the prior. Sometimes they even enhance those other elements, right? An easy example that we use in class is how monotheism like doubled down on the pre-existing ideological discourse of patriarchy, right? Like, and, and it used it to further bolster its control um, over, well, control over its subjects and its spread to uh, various parts of the globe. And that's just an example uh, real quickly off the top my head, but I would have to imagine that in this next mm, potential ideological shift, there's no way that we can get rid of, and you're using the term sediment, I think maybe in more layman's terms, the baggage that we all carry with us, no, that, like that, yeah. the ideological baggage we all carry like, where is that going to go? It just, it cannot be, it would have to be actually generational shifts, right? And I guess there is potential there for generation after generation to slowly learn a new way of being, a new way of thinking, a new way of speaking, and a new way of acting. I suppose there's potential there, but it's much more, it's easier said than done, especially when we're still operating under things, under under dominant discourses that still exist, class or and like capital what, and, and, and one truth thinking and all yeah. of the other things that we're kind of, you know, used to, um, framing our world around thomas kuhn that's the name i'm thinking of in the scientific yeah, the revolution shift, right yeah. like yeah we need a pair it, it will require a paradigm shift that is i mean i don't know if i want to claim this but maybe more significant than we have ever seen in human history right well if we're really really that, talking about the deconstruction of the modern nation state that's a big one right yeah even even the other ones are like you know they they took you know thousands and we talk about this obviously when we teach it thousands of years for the paradigm shift between um the quote-unquote romanticized hunter-gatherer society and the peasants living in an agricultural state right like the ancient egypts or babylons or what have you those types of things but that 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 shift was not overnight that was I mean, even the shift from that was like tens, you monotheism tens right the shift between divine right of thing divine right of kings and um the modern nation state right even that took a long time and the shift um, wasn't nearly as profound as the shift that right. myself or Nick would be looking for. And at least what our author here has potentially proposed, right? Like that, that, yeah. that shift has not been nearly, it wasn't very radical in my personal opinion. It was an so evolution. Just as one example I have in my writing is I teach an upper division undergraduate sociology course titled State and Society, where we go through, I, I mean, essentially we go through the, in, the theory of states and the history of states and what it means to be a citizen and borders and their relevance and so forth. But I just start the class the very first week, 
all of the students have to write a less than two sentence reflection and all they have to do is define a state. So I, literally the question is, what is a state? Using your own words in less than two sentences, what is a state? And without fail, every single one of them uses physical territory as a requisite of a state. They say something to the effect of, a state is a group of people that fall under the same political rule in a geographical location, right, et cetera. Something like that, along those lines, without fail, every single time. It's just a perfect example of, the ideological baggage, to use Jared's term, that has been so ingrained within us. And I mean, it, it's rational that it has been, right? Every state that exists right now has physical borders, right? Every state that we learn about, we learn about their borders and when were they formed and we look at the map and like, there are so many ways that this discourse is just ingrained within us, right? That we are going to have to unpack all of that to get the general population to support the idea of a network state that does not have physical borders. That's just one very minor example, right? That a state can exist without a border that we can tangibly see with a fence and a gate and a guard, right? That's a massive shift in the way that we think and the way that we view freedom and sovereignty and so forth. That's huge. And that's just one really minor aspect of this entire project. Um, and both both leadership and followers in today's constructs and today's states and today's like economic sphere like that, they're not going to necessarily want to make that shift. And that's funny, like we understand why those that have wouldn't want to make that shift. But those that don't have will also not want to make that shift for the very same reason that was discussed back in Plato's cave, right? Like the prisoner comes back and he tries to liberate the other the other prisoners and they're just more comfortable there. They can't wrap their brains around any other attempt at reality, any other I mean, understanding happen in real life in real time right there's going to be mm -hmm. let's say this project is off the ground etc you can imagine a conversation where someone is now a citizen of the network state and they're explaining to their friends that are still citizens of the legacy state like guys you need to join i cannot tell you the benefit that you're going to get from this like we're this is go this is a real political entity this is this is what's going to happen this is how you live this is how we all function and they and it's going like, to liberate you and they're, they're going to resist Right. The easiest example I could provide for that, that might be a little bit more grounded in modernity rather than my historical stuff that I like to use is think about all of us, Nick and myself included, that were idiots. And I specifically remember this. I don't know, five, seven, ten years ago, where that we we all knew that one person that said, hey, man, buy these things called bitcoins. It yep, will liberate exactly. you. And none of us did. At least I didn't. I don't know that Nick did. I mean, we might have a handful now, but we certainly don't have the ones that we could have bought for pennies on the dollar that are now worth fifty thousand uh, dollars a piece at this we, we don't we didn't we don't have any of that we didn't about listen. 60 now man you got to keep up. whatever it is we did not <laughs> we did not listen we did not listen because we were in a cave in that case yeah. we were in the cryptocurrency um yeah. we were in our own like I, I love us dollars or i love euros or i love yen or i love whatever reals or whatever we were investing in but it certainly wasn't some sort we were of not, like, we weren't even smart enough to be investing in yen or reals let's be honest yeah it's true <laughs> it's true, it's true. <laughs> But like, no, that's, that's an example, example, right? Like, yeah, and, and, and who better than the two of us to have been like opportunity, opportune investors in something that could challenge like fiat currency. And yet we still were not comfortable enough to do so. Like, like they literally could have come to us and be like, guys, all I need is a thousand dollars right yeah. now. You put this like intangible thing on this thing called a Bitcoin wallet. And in 10 years, you will literally never have to work again. And we were like, yeah, you're an idiot. Like, that's not going to be real. It's stupid. It's all fake. It's in the, on the computer. I wouldn't be on this podcast. I'd be on a beach in Fiji. And yeah. It'd be but we still might be doing the podcast. It'd just be from a beach in Fiji. <laughs> right. With much better equipment. Right. <laughs> <laughs> no. But yeah, that's an excellent example, right? But the reason that I harp on this so much is because I want to cl clarify that I'm not accusing Balaji of this mentality. But there's a classic character, right, of sort of this Silicon Valley mentality, which is like, if I build it, they will come, right? Essentially, like, I'm just going to build this product that is so absolutely mind blowing that I won't actually have to convince anyone to use it, that they will just, right. they'll just be, their mind will be completely exploded and they will know how good it is and they will all just come flocking. That does work sometimes, right? But if we're talking about sort of ideologically and materially overthrowing the legacy state, there's going to be some ideological effort required here. We're going to have to convince people to give up their ideological baggage to accept things like 
a sovereignty without physical borders. Just that one minor thing, is it, it, it takes incredible effort. So, I mean, like, again, the easiest example is look at every major technological advancement of the last, like, century and a half. All of them promise some sort of liberation, and all of them have actually been turned into mechanisms of control and mm -hmm. oppression. The automobile was going to free us from dead horses and horse shit in our cities, and, and we were going to be able to be on the open road and do all kinds of things. And now I've got the DMV, you know, up my ass every year, uh, maybe twice a year. And now I've got cops watching what I do every time. I drive somewhere, right? And now I have to answer to people just but like this. I'm at a mechanic, I don't know, at least maybe one to two to three times a year. Uh, I'm investing money in a asset that is depreciating. Like these, that's just an easy example. That those are shackles. Believe it or not, the, the automobile is not like the open road and freedom in a 57 Chevy. It is shackles. The cell phone, the same thing, the contracts. And of course, now I'm tied to my phone and now everyone expects me to be online 24-7 to answer their emails or their inquiries or their texts or whatever. These are shackles. Like so let me, the internet let me ask itself you a question is one of the greatest examples I can think of. The internet itself is one, it is, it was one of the best opportunities for complete liberation of the production of knowledge and then knowledge itself, right? And and what is it turned into? In, in, in just a couple of decades. What is it? So let me ask you this question because we talk about this all the time. You and I debate like the benefits of technology right. and so forth. I'll try to like frame, I'll try to be biology for a second. Cause I, I heard on one of the, he just did an episode on the Tim Ferriss podcast, an interview. If you guys want to listen to that, I'll link it in the show notes. But anyways, he talks about anarcho primitive primitivism in that episode. And he talks about how that it's really a romanticization of like hunter and gatherer society, right? And I've even listened to episodes with like John Zerzan, who he mentions and stuff, where they say like, we don't actually want to go back to living in a hunter-gatherer society. Like that nobody actually really wants. We don't want to go back to living in caves. We just want to be mindful of the dangers of technology, which that's fine. That's just one point. But what I want to ask you is, because this is biology's argument, do you think that the shackles created by the automobile are worth it? Do the positives outweigh the negatives? Absolutely not. Because he would argue absolutely they do. Same with the internet, same with I mean, what's the other one you use, the cell phone, right? So so the, the climate would beg to differ. And I guess that's right. like kind of my clincher. The, the climate would literally beg to differ, right? Like, and, and, and in theory, I guess, I suppose technology, um, if we rely more on like the virtual cloud, technically there might be less like industrialism and production and so on and so forth. There, that's always theoretical. We keep getting promised that as we move more things online that we'll be extracting more like actual like natural resources from the earth. But as an article you just sent me today uh, uh, kind of reveals that might not actually be the case, um, yeah. that, that all of this technology is actually not helping the environment whatsoever. Um, and again, for those of you that are always listening and get maybe annoyed when I kind of bring up the environment, I hate to just bring it up, but it is like the meta conversation that we just can't ignore. We all require air, water, shelter, food. These things are absolutely necessary. They're more necessary than your bullshit political ideologies. Um, so we cannot ignore them. We cannot ignore um, arguably the most perfect system that that we know of, at least in, in, in the universe right now, that was uh, uh, put together, of course, through long, long processes of evolution and all that other stuff to make a sustainable place where we can live. And if we continue to destroy it, then there is no new virtual cloud nation. There is no real nations. There's there's none of these things. So again, I, while people get annoyed when we take this route, it is the meta conversation that is always kind of ignored because people don't actually want to have to face it. That's part of the cave, right? So that's and a huge critique I have of the network state. Not a critique. It's a question I have about the network state project, which I've been saving for like when we get there, right? But states historically, I mean, not historically, right now are the biggest contributors to the climate issue, right? The US military is one of the biggest climate offenders that exists, right, as an example. So my question is, which we're yeah, I literally have is, like what what three C one thirties just fly over my house like today alone, just doing drills, like yeah. God knows how much of it just drills, just drills, yeah. just drills. So the question is that we need to address mm -hmm. eventually, right, that we'll, we'll talk about soon for sure is how how does the network state not become also an incredible climate offender just like the legacy state is right that's a big question not going to address that now because right. we want to talk about how it plays out first right it's the same critique for those that want to tech our way out by going to find somewhere else to colonize like it so be it you find somewhere else to colonize you actually have it if you have not changed the way you're actually interacting with the world and each other, you're going to merely run into the same problems on a Mars or a Polaris or wherever 
pie in the sky places that we want to go to, it's going to be the same thing over and over again. It's going to be rinse and repeat. And of well, course, the dangers are even greater there because the Mars's climate, as an example, is much more unforgiving than ours is. Right, and 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 like I said, I mean, like the idea of growth for growth's sake is 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 right. The discourse of a cancer cancer cell, right? That meme has mm-hmm. been going around lately, and that's that's unless you change that, like we're going to continue to run into these issues with all these other solutions. Yeah. So it's not that we actually want to. I get that it kind of sounds like we're like just crapping on any individual that has any sort of attempt at like trying to do something different. It's just that we are, I mean, we're, we're meant to be skeptical. We're meant to be critical. That's, that's what we are. And uh, we want people to be wary just based on our own knowledge and research over the years that unless we really fundamentally make these subjectivist changes to how we interact with each other in the world, all it's going to do is, is lead to just different forms of the same. The reason that this is important, I think this ideological shift, which I focused on a lot is one of the main reasons is that because he states that the sort of bar to be achieved to get recognition as a country, like we'll say the network state has arrived when the UN recognizes it is, is recognizes its legitimacy. That's kind of his bar to be uh, to shoot for. I have my own problems with the United Nations, but that's a whole other issue. You can read the footnote that I wrote uh, about that. Let's just assume that it is like we're shooting for United Nations recognition. The problem is- I put exponentially more faith in the UN than any individual nation state. That's what I'm sure. 100%. Yeah. Well, my only problem is the Security Council and the fact that the big five control that. And let's be honest, China and the US is not going to be quick to adopt, to recognize the network state. But that's a whole other issue. That's a whole other episode. Okay. So the problem is- if the network state requires recognition, I, let's not say require, if the goal is recognition of the United Nations, that the people leading the governments and the governments themselves are traditionally the latest adopters of new technology and new ways of thinking and new ways of behaving. So the reason that ideological baggage is important is because much work is going to have to be done to convince those people and the governments that they represent to recognize the network state as a legitimate sovereign entity. So it's not just about convincing the average Joe, like, hey, you should be a citizen of this network state. It doesn't have borders. What does that mean? It's not just about those day-to-day conversations, though that is also an incredible obstacle. If our goal is recognition by the UN, you're going to also have to convince those leaders and their organizations that this is legitimate. And they are traditionally the ones that are the latest adopters of anything new whatsoever, whether that's a new way of thinking or being or new technology, et cetera. That's a huge, huge obstacle. How difficult that is going for actual like material nation states um, that are a hell of a lot further along and with a hell of a lot more, um, I don't know, grounding and justification for statehood. Mm-hmm. Um, we see how well that's going. Kurdistan, um, the Zapatista Autonomous Region, Catalonia. Yep. I, I mean, we, the, the list just goes on and on and on. First Nations here in North America, like the list is just, and, and I would argue they have exponentially more of a leg to stand on than a, a network state would. Well, actually, let's be honest, because I, I want to go even harder because I have framed it where it's just like, well, we just need to convince these people that this is a good idea. And that's gonna be incredibly difficult. It's much more difficult than that because in theory, right? They are going to at all costs resist this idea. Correct. It's not just that it's like, oh, they don't know we need to educate them, right? It's not the information deficit hypothesis. It's they are going to violently resist this because it jeopardizes and attacks their legitimacy. Correct. Right. And so that's a much bigger obstacle. And as we know, modern day nation states lack all morality and ethics when it comes to this specific, <laughs> de- they, they really do. No, so, I don't disagree at all. Yes. But no, the reason I use those two terms specifically is because that lack of morality and ethics, if, if, if they are willing to indiscriminately drone strike people in, mm-hmm. in, in Kurdistan, for example, or uh, surround uh, Chiapas, uh, the southern part of Chiapas, Mexico, with M1A1 tanks or whatever it is, other examples we can think of, um, how much easier is it going to be for them to um, engage? engage in, in, in techno warfare, right? Like how to make sure that this type of thing is not. So that's actually, you led me right into what I didn't even have this in my writing. I just thought of it. We need to also be thinking of the ways right now, before this even gets off the ground of how to protect it from the attacks that will come from the legacy nation states, because like you just said, right, technological warfare, et cetera. I actually though, don't have as much faith as, as you in the government's ability to conduct technological warfare. I think private individuals, right? Like let's whatever the hackers, 
they are much more qualified and able to battle on those grounds than any government but they're co-opted by governments i mean yeah so that's the key right they have to actually be uh what was that they have to actually be independent and stuxnet stuxnet the stuxnet virus yeah yeah Yeah. anyway okay keep going so yeah yeah. they're gonna have to a portion of the citizenry right of the network state is going to have to be incredibly technologically inclined which just by default they will be and they have to be willing to implement those skills to battle the legacy nation states at some point right maybe it won't come to that who knows but if history is any example i think that we all know where this is going to lead eventually but the important point is we have the freedom right now because we're so early on in this conversation to be thinking of ways to a minimize that conflict but like to not go down a path that leads us to that conflict but b how to protect the network state from that that's inevitably going inevitably going to happen on some scale right regardless of what it is um Anyways, if you don't have anything to add, I'm gonna end with a quote that I ended my piece with and then we'll continue. All right, so I say, if the cloud country project has any hope of success, we mustn't frame it as starting anew, but must pragmatically consider the material and ideological and historical constraints of our times and work together to find solutions to overcome them. Any last thoughts? Let's get out of here. All right, so stay tuned because this is a first episode in a series um, we're going to be talking about this specific project, but also just my research overall and what I am operating under the banner of cyber anarchism, the potentiality of technology to challenge the current uh, modern nation state and what that and looks like. my inherent pessimism towards technology. No, 100%, which is why this is so perfect, because you're such like an anarcho-primitivist that <laughs> I love the duality that this is why this is so Anarcho-primitivist great. on a Zoom call right now. God, the irony. <laughs> I'm a hypocrite. I'm a hypocrite of the worst kind. No. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's really, you can't have a podcast and really <laughs> do that. I don't think it's fine. You'd be out on the street yelling. Yeah. Um, yeah. Anyways. Yeah. So I say, I'll say this is the first in a long series of these episodes as we have time. And as I do more research and as Balaji himself publishes more articles, or, or if he finally publishes his book, I will absolutely do a review on that, uh, both publication and uh, video uh, as well. So you can find us online revolutionandideology.com. We also post uh, clearly all of our videos. If you're not watching this on YouTube, somehow we have a YouTube channel. Just search Revolution and Ideology and you will find it there. Uh, Links in the show notes of where I'll post my writing online. I'll post a link, obviously, to the original article, et cetera. But yeah, I'm Nick. Jared. Later.